The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 24. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk together along the road? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we'd hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that that he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? And then enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was with them at the table, he took bread gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were our hearts burning within us as he talked, and as he opened the scripture to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together, and saying, it's true. The Lord has risen. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. I heard a story recently of a Sunday school teacher who was leading her class on Easter Sunday. She wanted to cut through some of the cultural clutter that accompanies the Easter holiday. And so she asked this class of five-year-olds, does anybody know the meaning of Easter? One little boy raised his hand and said, I know the meaning of Easter. Isn't Easter the time in which we have fireworks and wave flags? No, 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 that's, that's Independence Day. That's the 4th of July. Another one raised his hand and said, is Easter the time that we, we get candy and dress up? No, 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 that's Halloween. Finally, a little girl stood 
tall and said, I didn't know what Easter's all about. And the teacher said, okay, go ahead. She said, Easter is the time in which we remember that Jesus was crucified and he was buried and put in the tomb. And the teacher thinks, finally, one of these children understand. The kid continues, and on the third day, Jesus comes out of the tomb. And if he sees his shadow at six more weeks of winter... I love that. It's so funny. <laughs> True story. The resurrection of Jesus is the story through which all of Christianity is interpreted. So here we are on Easter weekend. And how do I, how do we describe with nouns and verbs and adjectives, something that is much too wonderful for words. Something that was not simply intended to be talked about, but experienced. Because there are just some things in life that don't fully make sense unless you experience it for yourself. My wife and I lived in Colorado for 10 years from 1999 to 2009. Those 10 years I was there, I learned to snowboard, loved it, and went to all the big resorts. However, my favorite place in Colorado to go was an out-of-the-way spot just outside Salida, Colorado, called Monarch. Monarch gets about 350 inches of snow a year. It sits right on the Continental Divide. My favorite run at my favorite ski resort is a double black diamond called Mirkwood Basin. To get to Mirkwood Basin... You ride the lift to the top, then you take your board off and hike several hundred more yards. And when you get to the top, because the oxygen is low, you're winded, you have to sit down for just a minute, even those of us that live there. But as you sit down on the picnic table at the top of the run and look out across the continental divide at the beauty of creation, there are no words to describe. There are no pictures that can describe what you experience by being there. So here we are together. We're talking about the resurrection. I think words and descriptions and pictures fall short. Oh, I I could spend some time speaking about the historicity of the story, historians' records of the account of the man named Jesus. We could talk about all the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection, and there were hundreds of them, hundreds of people that saw Jesus after he had risen from the dead. We we could even go into the prophetic fulfillment of, of the Old Testament, and it still wouldn't do justice because the resurrection was not merely meant to be talked about, it was meant to be experienced. And so now we pick up this story in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, Jesus meets two of his disciples right in the middle of their disappointment and their confusion. See, these two disciples, they had just experienced a traumatic weekend. There were riots in the streets of Jerusalem. There was the arrest of Jesus, his beating, his crucifixion, and his death. And so as they walk along the road, they're talking about this event, but the word converse actually more is a reference to to an argument or a debate. They're just trying to make sense of this convergence of things that had happened to them, and now they're on their way home. 
The, the confusion happened because most of the disciples had a bit more of a political view rather than religious view of how the Messiah would actually redeem Israel. And so their expectations have been shattered. I wonder if you've ever been in that place. Can you empathize with these two disciples as they walk along the road? Have you ever had all of your expectations and hopes completely shattered? And that's where we meet these two disciples. They were probably saying that this was not how we thought it was going to go. This was not our plan. Maybe you, maybe you've said that phrase. But Jesus appears and they don't recognize him. They have a sort of divine face blindness, which I learned is an actual condition. It's got a technical medical name, but I'm not going to try and pronounce it so I don't look stupid on Easter. But I actually have an acquaintance who has face blindness, and he cannot remember faces, even those of his coworkers, once he's left. It's a bizarre thing. So here they are. They've got this face blindness. They don't recognize Jesus. And Jesus says to them, what are you guys talking about? Have you ever walked up to a couple of people and they're talking about you, but they didn't know you were there? And so you walk up to make them squirm. Hey, what are you guys talking about? Oh, it's, you know, the weather, it's cold outside right now. Um, They're talking about Jesus. And this question stops them in their tracks. Their faces are downcast. And they say, have you not heard? Like, where have you been? Do you live under a rock? And Jesus says, heard about what things? About what things? About Jesus of Nazareth. They continue to walk along the road. They reach the destination. Jesus acts as if he's going to go further, but they invite him to spend the night with them. And so they sit down together at the table of the evening meal. In in first century Israel, there were typically two meals that were taken, a a smaller meal in the morning and a large meal in the evening. And and meals, meals were important occasions. There was no just grabbing a quick bite to eat. There were no TV trays. There was no drive-throughs. There was no McFalafel, none of that stuff. See, meals were not just about nutrition. Meals were also about relationship. In Israel, there were three types of meals. Ordinary, everyday meals, sacred meals, and meals of celebration. And all three of them were relational at their core and nature. And at every meal in ancient Israel, there was always bread. At every table and every home, there was bread. I love bread. I could eat bread at every meal. I go to some restaurants just for the bread. Like you ever, you ever go to the Texas Roadhouse and they've got the bread with that cinnamon butter? Come on, that's, that's as good as the steak. I mean, really. They sit at the table and in, in Jesus' day, Bread was a staple because it was easy to make, it was cheap, it was filling. But bread wasn't just a commodity that that was eaten. Bread was also symbolic of God's relationship with his people. It represented the covenant. Jesus took bread and broke it and said, this is my body. I'm establishing this this new covenant. So they're sitting at this table and an awakening happens. Because Jesus, he breaks the bread and immediately their eyes were opened and they realized it was Jesus. See, in this moment, they met Jesus at the table of resurrection. Now, this isn't the first time in the Bible that a couple of people's eyes were opened at a meal. 
It's a story in Genesis. Many of you know it. It's the story of Adam and Eve. And we read in Genesis 3 that the woman sees that the tree was beautiful and the fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And at that moment, their eyes were opened. Same phrase. But suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness and they sewed fig leaves together. There are some theologians that have this theory about the two disciples that are walking back from Jerusalem that day. Because see, one is named and one is left unnamed. There are some that theorize that this is actually a husband and wife couple that are headed back home after the crucifixion of Jesus. And so they hear our again, a couple sitting into the meal and their eyes are open. But this time as their eyes are open, it's not to their sin, but their eyes are open to new life. Their eyes are open to resurrection. Their eyes are open to a revelation. It's almost as if they've been sleepwalking for the moment and Jesus startled them awake. You ever just kind of slept walk through life? You need something to startle you awake. You ever sleepwalk through your faith, checking off religious boxes to feel better about ourselves? So I think the great challenge of the Christian faith in our day has nothing to do with persecution, cultural issues of morality or sexuality or politics or any of those things. I think the greatest challenge to the Christian faith in our day is indifference. We have somehow lost the wonder, the expectation, the anticipation, and the joy at who Jesus is. Maybe even committing the sin of making God boring and irrelevant, the one who created all things. I've come to believe that within every human heart, there is a burning desire for transformation and transcendence. The disciples said, weren't our hearts burning within us as he opened the scriptures to us along the road? There was this, this strong emotion, this, this hunger that whatever the world had to offer was not satisfying. So they get up, and they return to Jerusalem. They find the eleven, and those with them assembled and said, it, It's true. It is true. He has risen from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus in that moment startles them out of their, their restlessness. I have two dogs. I have a large golden doodle and a little Bashan Shih Tzu mix named Tyler. That's a picture of Tyler. Uh, my daughter named it when she was eight, so if you're a human named Tyler, sorry. That's the dog's name, too. Tyler is actually getting old. Uh, he's losing his teeth. He's a little grumpy. He's still a good dog. He's getting arthritis in his legs. He's only 10 pounds, so at night he sleeps with me in the bed, right at my feet. And recently, he's been doing this thing where I'll put him in, and he just can't seem to get settled. He just he goes in circles, and he tries to find a spot, and he finds a spot, and he gets up and tries to find another stop. And it's, it's really maddening. He just can't seem to, to settle down. He's restless. And I look at him, and sometimes I wonder about myself, about us. Do we, do we live with this restless attachment to life? A restlessness as to how we are viewed by others? A restlessness attachment to what it means to be successful as a human being. A restless attachment to what I possess or what I, I don't possess. 
There's this restlessness as we chase these things. And I look, I've come to think it's all smoke and mirrors, really. Because what I found that I really want, what I was created for, is transformation and transcendence. The word transcendent comes from the Latin. It comes from two words. It means beyond and to climb. So transcendence means to, to climb beyond, beyond the normal into something more, more divine. It's, it's what's spoken about in the historic Christian creed, the Nicene Creed, when the author writes, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. See, we gather together on the weekend at church, and what we're doing in some way is we're we're reaching for the invisible. We're reaching for this God who caused these disciples to have a burning in their heart. See, when I choose to meet Jesus at the table of resurrection, that leads me to the transcendence of salvation that I desire that, that then is expressed and experienced through peace and joy and contentment. Rather than agitation. I mean, we really do kind of seem to live in a day of agitation. There are a lot of people that just are agitated all the time so easily. So this, this, this summer, my parents are celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary, which is a fantastic accomplishment. And my, my parents are still, like, embarrassingly in love with each other. And it's great. It's what I, it's what I hope for. But they decided for their 50th wedding anniversary, they want all of us, so all the all their children and our children, they want to take a trip. And I'm like, you sure that's 18 of us? You, on your 50th, you want us all to go? Yep, we want you all to go. So they've decided we're going to go to this all-inclusive resort this summer. My brother just the other day sent me a message and said, hey, I found this Facebook group for people who have gone to the resort we're going to. You should check it out. You'll learn a bunch of stuff about the resort. I'm like, all right, cool. So I went on there the other day, and the very first post on this was this lady who was very upset, very upset. And she was upset because there are people at this resort that get up early, like at six o'clock and they go down and they save beach chairs and pool chairs with water bottles and towels. And as she spewed all of this vulgarity about what she thought about these people, I just sat there and I'm like, but that wasn't even the best part. The best part was the comments because the comments are always the best part. And I read them all because they're so entertaining and there were these people calling each other names, sometimes vulgar names, because the, the feed divided into two very distinct camps. The camps that said you should be allowed to save chairs with your stuff and if you're too lazy to get up early enough, that's your fault. And the other camp that said it's really rude to save it and if you save a chair then I'm going to throw your stuff in the sand. And this guy says, if you throw my stuff in the sand, I'm going to throw you in the sand. These are adults. <laughs> Talking about beach chairs. <laughs> adults that are living comfortably enough to afford an all-inclusive resort. The very last comment on the feed said this. If they run out of chairs... We've been there. Just tell the staff they'll bring more. (laughs) We're so agitated and anxious. Oh, I get the anxious part. I've battled that my whole life. That worry that kind of gnaws 
at the very fabric of our being. So how do I, how do I find this, this peace? This peace that the Apostle Paul writes about when he says, let the peace of Christ reign in your heart. Let the leader of your heart, let the, the dominant figure of your heart be the peace of Christ. And the only way that I need to find that peace is to spend time in quiet, contemplatively staring at Jesus, focusing my attention on Jesus, quieting my heart long enough to experience the resurrected Savior. Because when I can quiet my heart long enough to that, there's a joy that happens, a joy that the, that the two ex- disciples experienced when they said, it's true, it really is true, he's risen from the dead. So see, joy is really a way of looking at things. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy is a guarantee in the event of the resurrection. But see, it begins, it begins with a, a choice to fix our eyes on Jesus. I think joy is a focus before it's a feeling. Like, do you ever get, you ever get tired of trying to manage your moods? You go from excited to anxious to depressed to sad to agitated to angry, to all, sometimes all in one day. And we do all kinds of things to make ourselves feel better. We go on Pinterest and find little posters that say, choose joy. (laughs) There's a reorientation of our focus. Because what it is I focus on and what it is that I fix my heart upon will dictate what I experience inside. See, when I choose to focus on the resurrection and allow the other things to kind of fade into the background, there, there is a contentment. St. Augustine wrote, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. I don't think contentment is a temperament that we're born with. Like when one of my children was a baby... I'm not going to tell you which one for the sake of anonymity, but it was the male one. When, when he was a baby, like a clock, he could be an alarm clock. Every day at five o'clock, he would have a catastrophic meltdown. Every day. Unexplainable. It was irritating. And there was nothing that we could do to, to console him. So I, I don't think that contentment is something that we're born with. It's something that we learn. The Apostle Paul writing in the book of Philippians chapter four says, I have learned... To be content, whatever the circumstance. And he goes on to list all these positive experiences and the negatives. In whatever situation I find myself, I have learned to be content. See, I've learned to be content when I fix my eyes on Jesus and let all of those things that I thought were so important to fade into the background. I'm going to ask our worship team to come. And I want us to, to end with a question. What if I chose to live my life as if I actually believed 
the resurrection were true. I don't mean anecdotally. I don't mean religiously. I mean, what if I lived my life if I really believed that Jesus rose from the dead? Because if I chose to live my life as if Jesus really rose from the dead, I think that would make all the difference. So God, on this Easter weekend, would you put a burning in our heart, a burning that those two disciples experienced? I think we were created for more. I think we were hardwired with the desire to reach for the invisible. And so would you help me, would you help us to live each and every day as if the resurrection were actually true? Amen. So I trust that you will have a wonderful Easter day. As you go, may you go in the peace and the joy and the contentment of the risen Savior. Amen.